to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. Well, uh, <clears throat> let's pray. Father, please teach us from your word in the book of Exodus tonight uh, and show us your glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. And we live in a secular age. Uh, you may have thought that before, you may not, but I'm sure it is true. That is an age in which belief in God is now at best one option among others and uh, for many people it's kind of a weird option. Um, in fact, the idea of God is frankly a joke to many people. Uh, the famous zoologist Richard Dawkins uh, likes to compare belief in God to belief in a giant spaghetti monster in the sky. Um, uh, a predictably smug piece in the New Yorker from this last week uh, joked that hardly anybody believes anymore in Quote, an omnipotent man in the sky making moral rules and watching human actions with paranoid intensity. Uh, there was a guy called Sir Julian Huxley who died in 1975, but he once said, and operationally, God is beginning to resemble not a ruler, but the last fading smile of a cosmic Cheshire cat. Uh, Woody Allen, uh, who I quite like, he was a bit simpler. He said, how can I believe in God? when just last week I got my tongue caught in the roller of an electric typewriter. Yeah, he was like that. Uh, he is like that. Now, you know, does any of this matter, frankly? You know, does it matter whether or not people acknowledge God? Uh, does it matter that he's not honoured very much anymore? Uh, should those of us believe in, who believe in God, should we be kind of putting up a fight, you know, getting all angry about this? Shall we be defending God's honour from this mockery? Uh, well, the next part of the book of Exodus uh, can really help us with these questions, I think, uh, because it shows us that God does indeed care about his own honour. He cares about it very much. And actually, that this is a very good thing, good even for us. But it also shows us with terrifying clarity that he is perfectly capable of defending it on his own. So I'd love you to have the book of Exodus open. Uh, our text tonight is actually six chapters of Exodus. Exodus chapters 5 through to 11. It's the entire story of the plagues. Don't worry, we're not going to read all of it. Um, I'm gonna, but we are going to kind of jump between bits of it. And so it would be great to have a Bible or be able to see it. Although if you can't, don't worry, I'll read the bits uh, that I'm referring to. Uh, Roger's already recapped the story. Uh, that is, we leave... Uh, on the threshold of this promise that God is going to do something. Uh, but when Moses and Aaron actually then go and try to do something, as we read in chapter 5, it's at first spectacularly unsuccessful. You know, they go in uh, to Pharaoh, and uh, maybe they're a bit revved up now because of God's promises, uh, and they say, Pharaoh, let God's people go, and Pharaoh says, what, are you kidding you two kind of funny Jewish men with a stick, um, no. You know, and it's understandable, isn't it? Because he says, verse 2 of chapter 5, he says, 
Who is this Lord? Of course, the word, of course, as we heard last time, the word Lord in capitals is the Hebrew word for God, uh, Yahweh. Who is this Yahweh? It's this name Hebrew, uh, he, Pharaoh has never heard of. Why should I listen to him? I'm not going to obey him. Pharaoh is himself, actually, in Egyptian culture, kind of a god. You know, um, no, you need a better reason than that. Uh, and, you know, in fact, he responds by making things much worse. Uh, so he makes the situation kind of even more desperate. It was a terrible situation, the slavery they were in. Many people were dying. It had been accompanied by, as we saw in chapters 1 and 2, moments where Pharaoh had essentially attempted genocide. It was a really terrible situation. Now, Pharaoh makes it even worse. He says, you still got to make the same number of bricks, but you don't get any building materials. You've got to bring them before you, you know, collect them before you have breakfast, before you go to work. Impossibly difficult. Uh, he's also, if we read the text carefully, he's also kind of been very clever in the way he set this up. He's appointed taskmasters. These are probably Israelites who are happy to work for the Egyptians and so act as kind of middlemen. It's a classic strategy in oppressive situations like this. But it's a dreadful situation. And actually, if you just look over at chapter 6, verse 9, uh, we'll see it was really awful. Uh, we'll see what Moses and Aaron say, but it says in verse 9, they reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. You know, the Israelites are now in a situation where there's no, they don't have any space in their reality for anything other than their suffering. They can't hear any new words. They're just stuffed. And they're dying. And so unsurprisingly, people are a bit annoyed at Moses. Moses and Aaron, you know, and the taskmasters come to them, as we saw at the end of chapter 5, and they say, you have only made things worse. They basically kind of curse them. Uh, and Moses knows this. And so in verse 23, if you see it there, he takes it to God. And he says, Lord, verse 22, sorry, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me God? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people and you have not rescued your people at all. It's, you know, you're not doing a very good job, God. It's frankly, this plan of yours is a bit of a disaster. Why is, why is God doing it like this? It's actually a really good question. And we start to see the answer in the next verses. Chapter 6, have a look at verses 1 to 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, I'm Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know 
that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Did you notice how many times God says that? We see here what's going on. You see, God's purpose is not just to rescue Israel. His purpose is to make his name known. His purpose is to rescue Israel in such a way that they get who it is that's done this. That they know that he, ah, okay, this is what, this is who this God is. God is not interested in rescuing the Israelites in a way that means he is not recognized. Now that's a possibly a strange thought. We'll come back to that. But that thought needs to be developed much further because God's purpose is not just to show himself to Israel, but also to Egypt. Flip over to chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. If you've got your Bibles there, just on the next uh, page, page 60. Um, God again calls Moses and Aaron to go to Pharaoh. And chapter 7, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. This speech is really an introduction to everything that's going to come in the next few chapters. Now, what we see here is that in Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh is going to be confronted by a power that is greater than him. He thinks, and Egypt thinks he's a god. But he is about to meet God. It's about to become clear to him where he really stands in the universe. Uh, but there's more than that. He will resist. And in fact, it says God will ensure that he resists. Why? Because God's purpose is to make himself known. To the Egyptians, they will know that he is Yahweh. Well, these are the themes that are going to develop all through the story of the plagues, which is about to unfold. What happens is Moses and Aaron approach Pharaoh. They go again, and they tell him what God has said. Uh, but Pharaoh refuses to listen, even when they show him miraculous signs. I don't know. If you know the story in chapter 7, but Moses and Aaron go, and Moses, to show Pharaoh that he's for real, he turns his staff into a snake. Well, he doesn't. God does. Uh, but Pharaoh is unimpressed, especially because his magicians can do the same thing. Um, and it says in chapter 7, verse 13, it says, Pharaoh's heart became hard. And in response, God tells Moses to give Pharaoh a sign. Verse 17, have a look at it there. Chapter 7, verse 17. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed to blood. 
the fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink, and the Egyptians will know will not be able to drink its water. And Moses does this, and then the Nile turns to blood. But again, verse 22, Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he does not listen. Well, thus begin the ten plagues of Egypt. Um, time after time, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and they say, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. And time and again, Pharaoh refuses to listen. And so terrible plagues come upon the Egyptians. Frogs, gnats and flies swarm over the Egyptians in, as Moses puts it, in your palace and your bedroom and in your bed. They destroy the land and make life in Egypt impossible. All the livestock mysteriously die in the fields. A horrible disease causes boils breaking out on everyone. Extraordinary, extraordinarily large hail destroys the crops in the field and kills people and animals. And then the wind blows in enormous swarms of locusts that devour what is left in Egypt that cover, as the text says, all the ground until it was black, devouring all that was left after the hail, so that nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. And then finally, a thick darkness covers the land. A darkness, the text says, really, really eerily, a darkness that could be felt. So that people literally can't move. They just have to stay where they are for days. The plagues are awful. And they point to a number of things. Most basically, they're just horrible indicators that something is terribly, terribly wrong here. They represent the created order twisted into grotesque shapes, completely out of joint, as if the earth is kind of convulsing with sickness. They're kind of signs, I think, of the nature signs of the horrible injustice of Egypt. As we read them, it's really easy to feel, you know, to quickly just feel sorry for the Egyptians. There's something right about that, of course, but we mustn't remember the injustice that has produced this response. The horrible genocide, the killing of the babies, the atrocious slavery. This is kind of nature reacting in a way. One of the ideas in the Bible that's a bit weird today that perhaps we should pay more attention to is that the earth, the land, is affected by moral evils and injustices. In the law it says blood pollutes the land, not just trash, blood, injustice. The earth is not just morally neutral raw material indifferent to human activity. Actually, we live in, in an intricate, mutually dependent moral relationship with the created order. And this is why the Bible will describe creation groaning in labor pains. The plagues represent the created order itself revolting against the injustices of Egypt. But of course, much more importantly, the plagues aren't kind of doing this on their own. They're God doing it. The plagues represent God's rule over creation. In each case, the plagues come 
at exactly the moment Moses says, or God says that they will. And they depart at exactly the moment he says. At one point, Moses even kind of invites Pharaoh, name the time you want this plague to be lifted. And Pharaoh, maybe he didn't want to be too bold, he says, tomorrow. Should have said this afternoon, when it happens, tomorrow. But he says, tomorrow. And Moses prays, and that's when it happens. And it, you know, it's meant to show him, that they give him no doubt that this is God who's doing this. God's sovereignty is also shown by the fact that the plagues miraculously distinguish between the Egyptians and the Israelites. The Egyptian cattle die, but the Israelite cattle don't. The, uh, the hail falls on the Egyptians, but not in the land of Goshen where the Israelites live. And then most creepily, in the, the plague of darkness, darkness so thick you can't move, falls everywhere, and yet it says all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Can you imagine how eerie that would have been? It was a shocking demonstration of the fact that, as God says, I will make a distinction between my people and your people. Yet despite all this, Pharaoh just relentlessly refuses. At each point, he resists. Sometimes he's kind of overcome for a moment and he begins to give in. But as soon as the plague is removed, he changes his mind. He takes it back. Again and again, we're told that Pharaoh hardened his heart or that his heart was hardened or that his heart became hard and he would not listen. Uh, In the plague of frogs, for instance, it says, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron. As things get worse, sometimes he tries to kind of allow Moses part of his request. Uh, After the locusts, for example, his officials all come to him and say, this is terrible, just give in. And they say in in chapter 10, verse 7, they say, don't you realize Egypt is ruined? But Pharaoh still refuses to be totally defeated. He says that, yes, the Israelites may go, but only you men, the children have got to stay as my slaves. Well, God is not interested in compromises like that. And you know, there's something really very ugly about Pharaoh's stubbornness here. I hope you'll get the chance to read the narrative through and think about this. Pharaoh is the worst kind of megalomaniac. Obsessed with holding on to his own power. Ultimately, just completely indifferent to what happens to anyone other than himself. He tries anything to wriggle out of giving up his slaves. He tries, he tries pretending to repent and be sorry. He tries to wangle a better deal. It's shameful. And at the root of it, the text tells us, is this hard heart that he has. This idea of the hard heart is something we need to think about. It's important in the Bible, and actually the Bible says that it's, it's a possibility for any one of us. And here we see it unfolded quite powerfully, and there's something kind of tragically pathetic about it. It represents a, a stubborn refusal to face reality, even when it is staring him in the face, even when it is literally killing him. And... 
you know, it's, it's a choice of his own will, his own self-assertion over anything and everything. And it becomes a prison for Pharaoh. As his stubborn resistance continues, Pharaoh simply loses his capacity to choose anything else. Beginning from what seemed like an assertion of freedom, a choice to refuse the Lord's word, he ends up with no choice at all but his own destruction. But of course, as we've seen already, the text also says that not just that Pharaoh hardened his heart, but also that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In fact, as you go through, it actually says these things in almost exactly equal numbers. Equal number of times, Pharaoh hardened his heart or his heart became hard, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now we've, so what does that mean? We, we actually find this idea a bit difficult. Uh, you know, what is, how can that work? Who, what's going on here? Who's doing it? Is it, is it God's fault or Pharaoh's? Uh, we need to pause on this for a moment. Part of our problem here is that the Bible doesn't discuss issues like this in the way we would like it to. You know, we would probably prefer an abstract discussion, say, of divine sovereignty and human freedom. Um, but the Bible doesn't do it like that. The Bible tends to open up these questions by telling stories like this one. Stories that hint of things and are suggestive and lead you, excuse me, lead you not so much to kind of logical philosophical positions, but to practical outcomes. That's very much true here. We don't have an abstract philosophical discussion of what's going on with Pharaoh's heart. We've got a narrative about Pharaoh and God and their struggle that is mysterious and confronting. Another part of our problem, though, and here I will get a bit abstract uh, and philosophical, but another part of our problem is the way we think about God and freedom. We tend to think that either I'm free or God is sovereign. Uh, either I can choose or God can choose. God chooses for me. But, you know, this is just not how it is in the Bible. In the Bible, I have freedom only because of God's choice. Human free will exists within and depends upon the will of God. Do you know what I mean? It's quite a difficult thought, but it is important. And in a way, it makes sense, because just, just think about it for a moment. See, God is not just another actor in our world. He's not like a really big person who you know, might force us to do something or might not. And, you know, either he pours the milk jug or I pour it. God's not like that. Actually, God is God. We depend upon him for our very existence. And so how could we possibly have a freedom that is apart from his will? And that is, I think, kind of what we see here. You see, Pharaoh does have a real freedom. He makes his own choices that he's responsible for. There's no doubt about that, and yet his freedom is not independent of God's will. It depends upon it. And so it is true both that God hardens Pharaoh's heart and that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. What we see unfold here is, I think, a deep and confronting truth. 
we cannot ultimately be free from God's will. That's not a freedom that is possible for creatures. Our choices cannot ultimately get outside or stand against the purposes of God. The choice to reject God and to refuse his word, that can seem, as it no doubt seemed to Pharaoh, it can seem like an assertion of our will over against God's will, a declaration of autonomy. And we can do that for sure. But we don't free ourselves from God. Pharaoh did not really free himself from God's will when he did that. No, if we refuse God, we won't be free of him. On the contrary, we'll still be put to his purposes. But now it will be without our consent. And that's what happens to Pharaoh here, you see. His rejection of God is not a barrier to God's purposes. It's not like Pharaoh rejects God and God goes, Ooh, bummer. I didn't see that coming. Uh, maybe we'll try some more plagues. You know, that will work. Maybe, oh, it didn't work. Okay, we'll try ten. Will that work? It's not Pharaoh's rebellion. is not a hurdle that God has to get over. On the contrary, it turns out to be the very means by which God fulfills his purpose. Pharaoh becomes almost a tool in God's hands. The place where this comes out most clearly is chapter 9. Turn there if you've got a Bible. Chapter 9, verse 15, page 62. God is speaking through Moses to Pharaoh uh, as towards the end of the plagues. And in verse 15 he says, By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh's resistance is not a spanner in the works for God. An obstacle he comes up against. Now, if Pharaoh's resistance is in God's hands, the Lord uses it to make his name known more powerfully. This is a theme that we've already seen in these chapters, that God's ultimate purpose is to make himself known, to ensure that people recognize and acknowledge the reality of who he is. As you read these chapters, it comes up again and again. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. By this you shall know that I am the Lord, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God, so that you may know that I, the Lord, am in this land, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's, so that you may know that I am Yahweh. That's what God is doing in these plagues. And Pharaoh is powerless to stand against it. He is not free to resist that purpose coming about in any way. Even his stubborn rebellion will ultimately serve that end. God will make his name known. And evil, human sin, will not be able to detract from that in any sense. Not even in having an independent power to rebel. Well, this is where we leave the story of Exodus for now. If you read to the end of chapter 11, we're kind of on, we're, we're hanging with this at this point. 
waiting for the hammer blow that is going to come in the last terrible plague, the Passover. But for now, what are we, what are we going to do with what we see in these chapters? What we see in these chapters is that God is deeply committed to his own honor, to making his name known, and he will ensure that that happens. And he is no less committed to that today than he was then. He will glorify himself and no rival will stand. And none of us finally has any freedom whatsoever to avoid that coming to pass or really to make it more difficult. God is sovereign and like he used Pharaoh's, he will use our rebellion to serve his purposes of making himself known. Now, I wonder what your reactions are to that. It's quite possible that you might feel that this is frankly a bit petty, a bit precious on God's part. I mean, after all, if he's God, does he really need our acknowledgement? You know? Is it that, are we hurting his feelings by not praising him? Do you feel the power of that objection? Of course, we need to push back on that a little bit uh, and make sure we're not actually just making a really dumb mistake uh, because God is, of course, not just another person. He's not like a human emperor who wants everybody to see him and be impressed. We need to make sure we don't forget that, like with freedom, he's God. And actually, when you think about it, surely, actually, God, the one who gives us our every breath, who sustains us in existence at this very moment, surely, you know, he would have a right to be acknowledged if he wanted it. You might say it's rather generous that he puts up with our rebellion for even an instant. But, you know, there's something even deeper than we can say that we can say than this. Something that we learn by the way this story finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Uh, let me just, as we finish, take you to our New Testament reading again, John chapter 17. Uh, you might like to turn to it in your Bible. It is on page 1070. See, in Jesus Christ, we've been given a deeper revelation of God. And what it shows us is that God's commitment to his own glory is not petty self-aggrandizement. It's grace. Have a look at it there in John 17. Jesus is it's right before his death. It's the night before his crucifixion. And he prays. And he prays this, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Now, that, 
There's lots to unpack there, but I think what we see fundamentally is something incredibly wonderful. God does not need our acknowledgement of him. He has all the acknowledgement he could ever need already within his own life. For God is Trinity, the Father glorifying the Son in the Spirit and the Son glorifying the Father through the Spirit. He doesn't need our affirmation of him. He is utterly, wonderfully secure and whole within himself so that he overflows with beauty and love. No, God seeks to make himself known to us. He seeks to make his name known, not because he needs our acknowledgement, but because he loves us. Because you see, it's in knowing him that we find life. The knowledge of him, Jesus says, is eternal life. Our giving God glory is our greatest good. It is what we most deeply need. God's commitment to his own glory is grace. It is our salvation. That we may know God, you see, is, is a gift. That we may acknowledge him and glorify him. That our wills may consent to worshipping him. That is an incredible privilege. It is life. And that is a gift that God has given us at immense cost. Which is why it's really clear that the answer to this prayer Jesus prays, you know what the answer to it was? You know where it was answered? His crucifixion. Glorify me, Father, Jesus prayed. And the father answered this prayer by allowing his son to die for the world in, ob in obedience to him. Now is the moment of my glory, Jesus says, when I am lifted up and draw all people to myself. This is a profound mystery, but you know what? In the face of this, all talk about God being a bit precious fades into embarrassed silence. Because what we see here is that the place where God most deeply, most powerfully made his name known was in the cross where he gave his son to save us. And so when we read in Exodus the refrain, so that you may know that I am the Lord, let us remember what that ultimately means and where that commitment took God and see that it is sheer grace to us. Brothers and sisters, the honor of God does matter. It matters a great deal and that God is mocked is a great tragedy. But of course, we don't need to fight for it by being aggressive and angry and defensive. For God did not ultimately take that way himself. He allowed himself to be subjected to humiliation. And he is more than capable of defending his own honor when he needs to. No, the dishonoring of God is a tragedy, not for God, but for those who do it. Because the honoring of God is our salvation. 
The knowledge of him is eternal life. And so, friends, can I just invite you to respond to this in the way that is right for you at this moment? If you're a Christian, if you've come to believe in Jesus, then give thanks for God's commitment to his own glory and rejoice in it and join in his praise with all your heart. And do all that you can to invite others to share in that because the day will come when every knee will bow before Jesus Christ and every tongue will confess his name. When the Father will ensure that the Son is, no, is not dishonored forever. And nothing we can do will stand in the way of that. And if you're not, in a, if you're not a Christian at the moment, can I invite you to give yourself to the glory of God, to discover who he is in Jesus Christ crucified, and to discover that in knowing him is eternal life, and to give up your own self-glorification, your desire to stand against him, and to ask God to soften your heart so that you can consent to his glory and praise him. For there is nothing better for us in all the world, and God knows that, and he loves us enough that he will glorify himself in the end. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for making your name known. We thank you for making it name, your name known in judgment in Egypt and in taking that judgment upon yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that in knowing you is eternal life. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would soften all our hearts and the hearts of those we know that we would never be like Pharaoh and try and stand against your glory, but consent to it and rejoice in it and know that in that is our greatest good and our salvation. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.